Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Today is uh, the first 90 minutes is Guy Talk. So we've got a little extended version. And if you have a question for the panel, the power panel, and they're assembling as I speak, uh, you can send it over. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Sometimes it's helpful if you add the hyphen. You don't have to dial the hyphen, though. <laughs> you don't. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Just make the that hyphen clear. is not dialable. Oh, okay. Yeah, but our power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, and I believe 007 is joining us today. Wonderful. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. I think he's coming on the line as we speak. So, Justin, welcome. Hey, Bill. Hey, brother. Yeah. <laughs> good to hear your voice. There Hi, he Justin. Is. There he is. Good to be heard and good to hear you. Yeah. Good to hear you guys. Yeah, we have missed ye. I don't know why I'm speaking in the old English. <laughs> thy, thy has missed ye as well, well as. I, yeah. yeah I oh, good, good. So in the green room, I was talking uh, about this great uh, idea from C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, where there's a gentleman in the library, and the demon assigned to him uh, convinces him not to open the book, but to get up and go to lunch and come back with a fresh mind and you and and go have lunch right now. And so he gets him out of the library and he gets him a newspaper, gets him on a bus, and guess what? He doesn't go back to the library. And the demon is all bragging, saying, you know, this is what we do so well. And and his boss, Wormwood, says, you know, people think that demons, their job is to put ideas into people's heads, but our mm-hmm. job is to keep ideas out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's a, man, that's such a provocative thought. And of course, C.S. Lewis, you know, writes about the spiritual world in a dynamic that's so accessible. And I think, you know, really allows us to exercise our sanctified imagination of what it's like. Because I, you know, it, it makes me think of two things. One, I think often the, the greatest distraction or the greatest enemy of the best things are not bad things. They're actually good things, but just out of they're misprioritized, like going to lunch or eating sandwich or those types of things. Right. And it's, you know, the mentor that said the devil doesn't have to destroy us. He only has to distract us. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, but I love, you know, Paul's word in second Corinthians that the weapons of our warfare are mighty for pulling down strongholds and to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And so, I think it's important to recognize that not every thought that enters into our head is coming from us. <laughs> you know, it's the it's the it's the world, the the flesh, the devil, or um, scripture. And so, I think it's really really important uh, to keep that in mind. And sometimes, even when we're engaging in leisurely activities or things that are good, you know, have we prioritized what's most important in our day? And look how many times a day we get distracted. You know, we feel the Lord would have us pray, the Lord would have us call somebody. You know, I mean, I learned a long time ago, uh, and I'm thankful for cell phones, because how many times have I said to myself, you know, I need to call so-and-so and see how they're doing. And then I get distracted, and the next thing I know, it's now 11 o'clock at night, I haven't called them, I'll do it first thing in the morning. 
except mm-hmm. I get a call from somebody else the first thing in the morning. So the advantage for me uh, being wireless in the car is I call the people right on the spot when I'm driving because if I don't, the distractions often will get me off track, mm-hmm. and the devil loves that stuff. He loves mm-hmm. distractions, he loves chaos, and uh, he loves confusion. If you got an iPhone, you know, you can just say, Siri, remind me to call Jeff at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, and it will remind you the I, next morning. I do that all the time. Yeah, it's it's helpful. I don't. Somebody someday has got to make a movie of the screw tape letters because it yeah. represents this battle that Paul says our battle is not against flesh, right, flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle. Everywhere we go, we are in a spiritual battle, and we wear the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. These are the weapons that we use in the spiritual battle. This sword is the Word of God, and I think this is our most effective weapon in this spiritual battle. And But in order to know the Word of God, if all you know about the Bible is John three sixteen, your sword's going to be good— but it's not going to be very robust. That's the only weapon you have in your spiritual battle. But the more you know the Word of God, the more yeah, you can yeah. apply the Word of God in in all yeah. of the situations that you encounter in these spiritual battles. But I think yeah, yeah. that when the enemy keeps us, studying the Word of God is hard. It takes time. It takes study. It takes, you know, uh, all those things. And uh, and And... You're right, Tom. There are lots of distractions in this world that keep us from understanding God, his nature, his character, his promises, and especially what he has said about our identity in Christ, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. One of the things I had to learn as a pastor, because I do a lot of teaching and I have all my ministry, is to be able to understand the difference between transferring information on the Bible— and helping people understand how to utilize the Bible in their daily life. And too often, I don't see a lot of preachers or teachers that really help us understand that. How do you take a scripture verse when you get distracted and use that scripture verse to get you back on track? The problem is most of us have not been taught that. We don't know how, and yet that is what we need to be doing because I think of especially young people today with all the temptations and all the things that pull them away. Uh, Some of them have learned scripture. My mother was a a classic. She had memorized the entire catechism and I think the Gospel of John when she was a kid. Wow. And it was amazing. Even when she was 99 years old, she could still do that. She said the only problem was I didn't know what it meant and I didn't know how to use it. Hmm. What do we accomplish when we do that? You know, it's not just memory. It's memory so you can put it to work at the appropriate time. Reminds me of the old Abe Lincoln line. Abe Lincoln said that it's... um, it's not how much of the Bible you know is how much of the Bible goes through you. Mm, I'm yes. butchering that quote, but uh, <laughs> my, let's just leave it to me. My to youngest son, yeah. my youngest son, just went to a Bible study this week, and I asked him, "Well, what did you guys study?" And he goes, "Well, we're in James." And I said, "What did you learn?" And he said, "Well, do not merely be listeners or hearers of the word, but also be doers. Do what it says." In the NIV says so. James mm-hmm. uh, one twenty two. And yeah. the question is. What are you doing? Because too often we leave the Bible study. Well, let's go get a cup of coffee. Oh, let's go. Mm -hmm. I got stuff to do. I've got to study this. Mm -hmm. After a Bible study, every Christian should be saying, so what are you going to do with it, Jeff? How Mm -hmm. am I going to put this to work in my life? How am I going to put this to work in my marriage? If we did that and actually did it and lovingly held one another accountable, think of the difference it would make for most of us. 
Yeah. And it's that's such an important aspect too. It's, it's you know, and I think built to your point, it's not about getting through the Bible, but the Bible getting you know in and through us, right? Not about how much we know, but how much we obey. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, and I, you know, Jeff, you brought up Ephesians six, and I was just looking looking back at that. Um, you know, talking about actually using the word, applying the word, and um, again, I'm really convinced that the best way to apply God's word is to pray God's word. And mm-hmm. you know, when it says taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, uh, at least in my English Bible, there's a comma, and then there's a verse, praying at all times in the spirit. And I think that translation or that way it's phrased that way, we, we kind of tend to think that that the weight taking up the sword of the spirit is one thing and then praying is another thing or like another weapon but it's actually meant to be a continuous thought one flow of thought of taking up the word of god praying at all times there's not meant to be necessarily a pause for a new thought and i think that that i have discovered so much power praying the word not when i'm alone and individually and that's 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 experience the Lord powerfully there, but when I pray the Word with other people and yeah. I see um, the Holy Spirit at work in such a dynamic way that there's a there's a conviction that comes upon my heart there's, that I hear other people pray about from the Word. I'm looking back at the Word and like, man, I, I need to pray about that too. I didn't even know I needed to pray about that. And Or there's things about God that are revealed and made known to me. And so I think if you can spend time uh, praying the Word with other people, um, that's just the well to really be students of the full of God and live life from His strength instead of our own. Hmm. You know, and I really want to affirm that. I have, my secretary is from Ethiopia. Her name is Mizrock. Wonderful woman. Real prayer aware. I asked her, what's prayer like over in Ethiopia with the church? How do you do this? And she says, well, basically we come together and pray all day. I said, okay, explain to me what that means. She said, the pastor will put out a topic like, the people in the other village need food and water, and then we will pray and then go out and find help see if we can give them food and water. But she says we pray back Scripture over and over and over to the Lord uh, in this prayer time. And I'm thinking about it, I, I can't remember the last time I was at a prayer meeting that went more than an hour. Because, mm-hmm. And oftentimes we're not praying back Scripture. We're basically telling the Lord our problems. Yeah. But, but if we did that, what you're talking about, Justin, I think we'd find great power and great answers to prayer. Yeah. And you know when you pray God's word, you know it's true, and you know you are in God's will, because his word right. is true, and it is in right. his will. Yeah. Nicely mm-hmm. done, gentlemen. Yeah. yeah. Good opening uh, responses from all of you. I'm looking <laughs> looking at you with great approval right now. That's why we make the big bucks, <laughs> and, right? And we're and we're enjoying your approval. <laughs> yeah, and you make the no bucks, just so you know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but let's not tell Justin that because he's not here. He's on. He's on the phone. I'll so. say, I'm, I'm calling in. I can't see your face. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So let me know what your questions are. Got some good ones coming in. We'll get to them after the break. Eight seven seven nine three three twenty four eighty four. Again, nine three three. 2484, but make sure you add on the 877 part. You know, I'm making this very confusing, aren't I? Let me try that one more time. 877-933-2484. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. jazz violin to get guy talk underway if you just joined us uh, this is a very popular segment according to my uh, press agent who is me uh <laughs> i don't pay to have a press agent i write my own press releases it's good yeah and this is a popular segment i like it yeah according to my press agent um so ask a question. Let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Got a nice comment uh, on application is where it is at. Imagine a painter never applying the paint to the wall. He spends all his time reading the paint can, admiring the color, but never putting it on the wall. <laughs> Doesn't work if you do it that way. You got to get it on the wall. When I was in seminary, we had a student from Nigeria, pastor. He was a you know, traveling pastor, went from village to village. His name was William Lautai. And at coffee one day, I said, William, what's a worship service like in Nigeria? And he says, oh, well, we we gather around 7 in the morning, and we sing some songs, and then about, you know, 8.30, I'll, I'll preach the word, and then when I get done with the word, I'll say, now, go out in the village and do it, and come back at 6 tonight, and we'll discuss what the Lord did through you. Wow. I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, yeah, don't you do it that way here? <laughs> Yeah, let's put it to work right away, and that's exactly what they did. And that painter knows that there's a paint can there. He knows what the paint is for and how to apply it, and he's trained himself on how to best apply it, and then he can go out and paint. If we are ministers of reconciliation, ministers of the gospel in this world, we should do the same with the Word of God. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Uh, anything else, Justin? Yeah, you know, it made me think of, I mean, going back to the Great Commission, um, a word that Dallas Willard once said, he wrote a book called The Great Omission, which says that we have taken the word, essentially, um, the, of Great Commission, the word obey, out of it. That we, we view the Great Commission as teaching others about all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has commanded, rather than teaching others to obey. And I think that the, the danger in that is if we teach a bunch, if, we, if we're only teaching people about God rather than how to actually relate with God, with, with love-motivated obedience, we're just increasing their gap between their knowledge and obedience. And, and I think that, you know, the type of knowing the Scripture talks about in terms of that's related to discipleship is what we're talking about. It's that actual application, lived-out knowledge experience um of, of of following jesus and doing what he doing what he did and so um i think that's part of what's gotten us into maybe the corner a little bit in the church that we've we've centered so much on teaching others about and and had such maybe a head heavy focused you know model of discipleship rather than a, a whole being uh focus of discipleship that of course knowledge is important and do, right doctrine is, is essential but putting that into practice um, is where discipleship actually happens. You know, when you, you, 1 Corinthians 11 says that, uh, Paul says, be imitators of me just as I am an imitator of Christ. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that, is, that is what a disciple does. A disciple is not just a learner, but also the doer. Mm -hmm. So when God says mm -hmm. to love, well, how did Christ love? 
He gave himself up for others. So how should we love? We should give ourselves up for others. When people come to church, and I've often heard it said, I come to church to learn about Jesus. And I remember one pastor saying, yes, and then I want you to go out and be Jesus. And that's exactly what we're after. We're out there to represent him, to speak his word, to be his hands and feet, and to literally stand for the truth. Do it in love, but stand up for the truth just as he would. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a question. My church uses the NLT, is that the New Living Testament version? Mm-hmm. NLT. New Living Translation. New Living Translation, of course. Thank you, Justin. Um, my church uses the New Living Translation version, and I have a family member that argues with me about only using the New King James version. How do I respond or think about what version to use? That's a good question. The first question I'd ask my family member is, why is that the authoritative one? And my, what I've heard back from people, because it's called the authorized. Well, who authorized it? King James authorized it in 1611. It wasn't authorized by the Lord Jesus or whatever else. And what about the Greek text? What about the Hebrew text? That's even better. So there's a lot of false arguments that go on with that. And I know part of my study of the word is I'll look at anywhere from, and I'm exaggerating, five to 15 different translations, as well as the Greek and Hebrew, to get a good understanding of what the word is saying. Most of the time, the different English translations, and there's dozens of them, translate the Hebrew in the Old Testament and the Greek in the New Testament in pretty much the same way. There are, however, some instances in which the Greek uh, is not as easy to translate, and therefore you'll get a little bit of difference between some of the English translations. But for the most part, they're saying the same things. I also study and often look at multiple translations. There are some times that the King James or New King James Version, I think, gets it better. There are times where I think the NIV gets it better. There's sometimes where I think the NASB, the New American Standard Version, gets it better or Bible gets it better. Um, And so you go back to the original language sometime to say, okay, why why was there some difficulty here translating this Greek concept? And sometimes you find great nuggets of truth in diving into that level of detail. Um, But there isn't one. Each version will have a different methodology for translating the Greek. So some will go word by word by word. Others will go more thought by thought by thought. There isn't one um, perfect way to translate. They're just different ways to translate. So there's, there's the differences. And here's how the devil works. The devil is very content to move us off of Jesus hmm. onto this is the only official translation. This is the only official church. Church. This is the only official doctrine. Anything that moves us away from the ultimate target, which is knowing Jesus and surrendering to him, becomes one of our grandest mistakes. And the devil's very happy about that. So folks that tell me it's only the King James, I will challenge them on that. And I will ask them, how does you know the NIV or the ESV tell us anything different about Jesus than you're reading in the King James? And you better point it out to me verse by verse. And not just use a cliche that say this is the only authorized one. Mm-hmm. Lately, yeah. my brother has been talking about a Hebrew New Testament that should supersede the Greek. Have you heard about this? I have not. A Hebrew New Testament? What? Yeah, that's what the question was. And I, well, I don't, I don't read Hebrew. I don't know if anybody else does either. So I, I don't read know. a little bit of Hebrew, but I don't even see what the point would be because the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, Greek. right? Yeah. Right. And so that would be a translation through another translation through another translation. Now, now maybe, I don't know if this is it or not, but there are some 
uh, versions that are taking some of the old Hebrew names, like instead of translating Iesus, which is the Greek for Jesus, as the English Jesus, they'll translate it into Yeshua, which is probably Mm -hmm. the name that people spoke when they called him by name is probably Mm -hmm. what they were actually saying. Um, some will then take uh, the word we were talking about this last time, the tetragrammaton, the the name for God, and they'll they'll when that comes up, they'll say Yahweh instead of the Lord, and they'll do things like that. That may be what they're talking about because I don't know be. why you would translate a Greek New mm-hmm. Testament into Hebrew and have it be better in any way. Mm-hmm. Right. Another comment uh, just came in. I was taught to study the Bible through the inductive method also to spend 75% of the time on observation and interpretation mm. to be sure my application is correct. Mm. Well, that's not a bad concept yeah. at all. I wish no. people would spend more time with the text mm-hmm. and letting the text say what it says rather than me reading into the text what I want it to say. So mm-hmm. doing the inductive method is a solid method, uh, but the thing of it is sometimes you get caught up in doing nothing but the inductive and you finally don't say, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to my church? How does this apply the way I live in the world? So you've got to finally get to that step and apply it. But the inductive mm-hmm. is a good method. Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, I really I appreciate that because I, I think we, we do often so quickly move to the application. And so I think the those steps of observation and interpretation, I think, are really important to recognize that, I mean, one, the Bible was not written to us but it was written for us. And so the better we can understand the Bible's original message to the original audience, the better we'll be able to capture that universal truth or principle and how it would apply to us, you know, um, in in the 21st century. And so, um, I mean, I I do think it's, you know, often, you know, we we read a passage and we want to get something out of it or we want to know how this applies to me. So I think I have found in particular practicing and teaching the inductive method um, of using observations really as the building blocks and that the fact that there's always more to observe, you know, there's, you go Mm -hmm. back to a text and I have maybe studied it dozens or maybe even a hundred times. And I can, there's still fresh insight that always there. Right. Cause I mean, you look at the, there's always the, the, the broader context that that passage sits in within the book, within the Testament, within the whole Bible. And, and so I, I think that's actually really, that's really wise to spend the majority of your time observing and interpreting. Um, but then when it gets to applying, again, I'm going to go back to ringing that bell of, of really allow prayer to be in the whole process of it, praying and asking the Lord to illuminate your understanding by the power of the Spirit, asking the Lord to really help you understand it, and and then giving you the courage uh, to obey and to apply it. I like it. If in, I'm thankful that in my own, my first serious Bible study, uh, was using this approach, kind of the inductive approach, observation, interpretation, application. And I, I agree with the caller in the sense that if you are going to apply it properly, you have to have a proper observation and interpretation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's critical. So I, I you know, percentage-wise, uh, sure, that's fine. But I, the, mm-hmm. you have to build the foundation of proper interpretation in order to get good application. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Let me know what your questions are, 877 933 2484. And if you can already um, get your questions over during the break, we'll get them on the air right after the break. And in about uh, 90 seconds, we'll be back with Guide Talk. My pastor friend, Tom Parrish, is here. Jeff Redorn is here. And 007. 
Justin Jepson. We'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Okay, sometimes the 90-second break that happens is uh, some of the liveliest discussion that goes on here in the studio. (laughs) And it sometimes directs where we go from here. And Jeff and uh, Tom and Justin, you guys had quite a discussion going on. I did not have my headphones on, so I didn't hear all of it. So I can't even pretend to ask the right questions. So let's (laughs) have that discussion, and I will sit here and nod my head like a parakeet. We were talking about all of our shared history in in some of the practices to observe the text and and I think at some point in time in all of our studies we've used colored symbols and uh, colored pencils and uh, to mark certain ideas or concepts or words or people in the text it's it's a technique that is used to slow yourself down to study the bible not just read over it to but to read and reread and reread and and to mark key symbols there's one chapter for example that i i think is fascinating actually uh, a few chapters romans 9 through 11 Every, i used uh, colored symbols like a, a red heart for believe or trust but i used a, an orange star in fact orange was the color of israel and the and everything from the old testament and so on so whenever the new testament was talking about israel i would mark it with an orange star well you get to romans 9 10 and 11 for example and guess what you see you see all these orange and by the way character names would just be an orange rectangle around the old testament character name and you get to romans 9 and all of a sudden you see all these orange stars and all these orange rectangles and you see it throughout uh, Romans 10 and then Romans 11, you see all these orange stars. And then a pair of orange tablets for the law. And so what do you think this major topic is of these chapters? It, it's pertaining to Israel. And so those are those were techniques that we used to just slow ourselves down, observe the text more carefully. And I like that approach. And I like what I used to do. Uh, there used to be a parallel Bible and it had eight translations in it on two pages so you had four per page, and I always loved that because I would sit there as I'd study, and I'd look at every translation along the way, and then I would mark that up as well. It got to a point where I couldn't even read it anymore because I had too many marks. But the point was it forced me to go deeper into the text than just reading it casually and jumping on to something else. So I like that approach. And, Justin, you had some good ideas, too, about the what. Yeah, well, when you talk about, um, you know, observation, you think, well, how do I do that, you know? Um, and I think it's helpful to think of it in terms of um, there's what's called the five W's and the H, and they just represent six questions to ask of the text to really observe it fully and thoroughly. And it's uh, asking who, what, when, where, why, and how. And so if you, if you slowly go through that and read, you could even read the passage six times and maybe read it through the lens of the question. Um, then you're reading repeatedly, which is a key practice to really observe the text well. And I, I guarantee every single time you're going to see something new and even just noticing who's there and when it was. And sometimes there's a timestamp. Sometimes you're noticing a, t- uh, a time of day or a series of days um, and noticing how what happened and why it happened. And uh, that for me, that's just been a really helpful practice. And, and at times I've you know come up with a different way of 
marking those those different questions, whether I circle the why or whether I underline the what or whether I put a rectangle around the who or little symbols above, you know, different names or things like that. And so I think there's, uh, again, part of it's getting creative with it. And like, not only are you slowing you down, but you're also engaging your sense, your senses as well. And I, I would even add, when you do that, read it aloud. And, uh, yeah. and there's something powerful about that because not, you're not just seeing it, but you're also hearing it. And so when you engage your senses like that, um, the Lord has a way of opening up our understanding in, in fresh ways. The other thing that I used to do quite a bit, and, and, and Bill knows that I have lots of charts and, and outlines and lists and things of Scripture, but I used to categorize uh, passages that were uh, speaking on the same topic. So, for example, I've, I've got a spreadsheet that's divided up into biblical topics. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What about the Trinity, the divinity of Christ? our assurance of salvation. And I'll just start outlining, and sometimes, you know, three or four layers deep of all of the passages that speak on that topic. And I create this, you know, giant outline. I can't remember how long my spreadsheet is of all this outline, but it's thousands of lines long, thousands of verses categorized kind of by topic. And that's a good approach. I mean, what we want to do is understand that we are reading the Word of God, not to just gain information, but we're looking for transformation. And I usually have people come up to me and once in a while they'll say, you know, Pastor, I read through the Bible in a year. And I'll say, great, what did you learn? And I usually get these blank stares like, oh, well, I, I read it through in a year. My response is, it's not a race. You know, I would be much happier if Christians would spend, and I'm serious, if they would spend a year in the Gospel of John, reading it over and over, you know, getting into those verses, letting those verses settle deep within you, change your heart and mind than to say I've read through it in a year, because it's not a race, it is a transformation. Mm-hmm. Nicely done. All right, here's yeah. uh, a passage in Matthew. I'm going to read this passage. It's several verses, so bear with me. But uh, this is Matthew chapter 22. Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who made a wedding feast for his son. He sent out to his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent out the other servants saying, tell those who were invited. Look, I've prepared my meal. My oxen and fattened cattle are killed and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But paying no attention, they went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest grabbed his servants, humiliated them and killed them. Now the king became furious, sending his troops. He destroyed those murderers and set fire to their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So go into the highways and byways and invite everyone you find to the wedding feast. And those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all they found, both good and bad. And the wedding was filled with guests." But when the king came in to look over the guests, he saw a man there who wasn't dressed in wedding clothes. Friend, he said to him, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But the man was silent. Then the king said to his servants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. 
I'll hang up and listen. Uh, I think, guys, if this is okay, let's start by identifying the different people and and the groups that are in this and uh, what happens kind of in the first part, and then we can move to what happens to the guy that shows up to the banquet who's not prepared to go in. Does that sound okay to you guys? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. So the, the king is God. The son is Christ. I think the servants that he comes to uh, is Israel. And remember, mm-hmm. Israel rejected the Christ. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And that brought judgment on Israel. And I think that judgment, when he got angry, he judged Israel. Luke 19, uh, 44 says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, mm-hmm. uh, God's judgment came upon them and the city was destroyed. J- Jerusalem was destroyed and Israel was scattered out through the known world. So the other guests uh, that you could find, go find anyone else that you can find, I believe are the Gentile nations. The wedding banquet is, I believe, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is, I believe, that the timing of that will be the first thing that happens in the millennial reign of Christ. And so what happens to the guy at the end relates to that, which we can get to. But So those are the main characters. I would agree. I don't see any issue with that. It fits the text. It's what's there. And notice again, right in verse 2, Jesus, when telling a parable, says the kingdom of heaven may be compared. And then he tells the parable. So now we're getting a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is really all about. So there's the truth there. And he uses his illustration to help get that across. Yeah. And I, and I think in saying that the uh, the servants is Israel, um, I mean, I think specifically, you know, he's using that, that same word that, Paul uses of himself when he says, I'm a bond servant or a servant to slave of Christ. I think he's, he's speaking, you know, on one hand, the fact that they took the servants um, and treated them, you know, tell them, uh, seize the servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. And I think on one hand, he's also referring back to that Old Testament backdrop of, you know, when, I, when God sent his prophets, his servants, to warn them, those who were called, um, again, of Israel, but they did not receive did not receive that. So I think just to specify, service not just Israel in general, but I think specifically the ones who um, the Lord has sent on His behalf to reach His people, to His call to His people, uh, to covet faithfulness. Well, and this goes on. I mean, through every generation, because every generation is called. It's mm-hmm. matter. It's whether we respond or not. So there are many Gentiles that have been called. And are going to be thrown out at the end. And I look at verse 11, when he came and looked at the guests, and there was a man with no wedding garment. Well, what is the wedding garment for a Christian? It is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. We are identified with him. And when we're identified with him, we're in the kingdom. When we're not identified him with him, we're out of the kingdom. And I'm going to, I'm going to tr- get more specific. Now, I don't know if you guys will agree with this. I actually think that that uh, reference to him being thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, we actually see many parables at the end of Matthew that have the same language. So the parable of the weeds, the parable of the net, the parable of the wedding banquet, this master servant, the parable of the 10 virgins, that you have some that are shut out and some that are allowed in, often into this banquet, which I believe is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of Christ. That's the start of the millennial kingdom. So I think the timing of that last part of this parable is actually at the second coming of Christ when it says in Matthew 25 that he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep are allowed to come in. The goats go away or depart from me, and they are not allowed in. 
these parables in Matthew leading up to Matthew 25, which describes the sheep and the goats, and by the way, we know this happens because it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so that is the timing of it at the second coming of Christ, some will be allowed in, and I, it's not because of their work. Some will say it's they get in because the, what, what you've done to the least of these, my brothers. No, you don't get into the heaven because of your works. You get in because of your faith, and they are called righteous. The others are sent away. And so I think this parable is describing one of the goats who is sent away and not allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. What drives me absolutely crazy as a pastor is I will have people say, well, you know, pastor, my Jesus wouldn't reject anybody from the kingdom of God. My Jesus loves everyone. Well, in one sense, that's true. Jesus Mm -hmm. does love everyone, but he's not your Jesus. That is, you can't manipulate him to say what you want to say because you have a particular opinion. The Jesus of the Bible says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And we have to take seriously that this gentle Jesus who carries the lamb is also the Jesus who comes on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth Mm -hmm. and will cut down those who have opposed him. So we've got to be serious and know the real Jesus and the real one you don't want to mess with. Yeah, and so you know, and again, the the language here is um, so so evocative, especially when you consider Matthew's original audience being being a Jewish audience, you know, and, and that idea. I, I look back on uh, the end of verse eight when he said that those invited were not worthy, you know, and Jesus, you know, the references that he made that I, I, I've come first to the lost sheep of Israel, you know, and I think of John ten that I have sheep that are not of this fold mm-hmm. that I'm going to get, and he's speaking of you know. The, the whole purpose of Israel wasn't to be this exclusive club for God. It was meant to be the, the redeemed people through which the rest of the nations would come to the knowledge of, of him. And and so the, the ones originally invited have failed in that. And so Jesus is saying it's it's not about now just, just one chosen group of nation. I, I'm redeeming. There's a new Israel, that so to speak, that, that Paul talks about in, in Romans that someone's a, a Jew, not just by their blood or by their lineage, um, but by their position and their faith in me. And so, um, again, thinking of this, this, this parable, I mean, think of parables in general, they're, they're meant to be, as I, I think I've said, we've talked about this before, parables, they're meant to be a window into a dynamic of the kingdom of God to see it more clearly, to understand it, but they're also meant to be a mirror by which we can properly see ourselves within the context of his kingdom. And so I think coming to an original audience of, of, of Jewish people, you know, this, this was quite the parable to follow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well done. We're going to take a break and we come back. Your question, we'll get it on the air. All you have to do is text it over 877-933-2484. Coming up on the 29th of this month, we're going to have our special one-day fundraiser. It's going to be a blast. I can hardly wait. Those days are so fun. All right, we'll be right back in just a minute. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com
Welcome back to the show. My panel is having other conversations. They're not paying attention. You guys do that often. It's like, hello, we're back on the air. We don't do that often. We're with you, Bill. Well, come, come on. on. You, guys, you guys are doing that more than... <laughs> we're having a good biblical discussion. That's everywhere. true. You were. You were. And a great question came up, and we'll maybe deal with that, because we're going to do the extended version today, so we're going to do an extra uh, 30 minutes. I don't know if, Justin, you could stay with us or not, but uh, always glad to have you. And we are going to go back to some great questions we've got here. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 20... Towards the end of the verse, is this talking about a form of water baptism? First Peter three twenty. Yep, I'm going to ask uh, Justin. It sounds like your pages are turned. Are you ready to go? <laughs> yeah, three twenty. You said. Yeah, First Peter three twenty. It's in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, totally. I'm there. No, I'm okay. Good. You, but twenty twenty is right in the middle of a clause. I think it's starting in twenty one. But. Um, let me just read the sections, I think, that'll help answer the question. So starting in verse 18, it says, For Christ, who suffered once for sins, the righteous be unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, that's verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. In verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Sorry, I, that. I'll let the other guys respond first. I love the verse, and as I think about this, I've had the privilege of traveling the world of being in Bangladesh, in Nepal, Moscow, and I've, I've interacted with a lot of Christians. Here's the one thing I found out. In countries especially where there is persecution of Christianity, the government doesn't care if you make a personal confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. The government gets really upset when you go to the river to get baptized because there is a departure point there. And in the early church, um, the whole concept of baptism was huge, and we've lost that today. It's become a ritual in the West. We do our baptisms. Even if you're into, you know, believer's baptism and full immersion, you know, it's it's at the beginning of the service. It happens in about one minute in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then we go on with the service. For Christians in the Middle East and elsewhere, this is a life-changing moment where you publicly are baptized, and when you do that, your life is now on the line. So I think there's much more depth to this in First Peter that we don't get. But among the Gentiles and among the Jews of that day, they would have understood this to be something very, very significant. And I think Peter's touching on that. I think we can know that Noah was saved through the water, meaning the flood waters that rose sure. that he was saved through. And then it says this water symbolizes baptism that now saves. I personally don't think that water baptism saves anybody. I think we're saved through faith in Christ. But it says this water symbolizes the mechanism that we are saved by, and that is what is described, I think, in Scripture, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is receiving the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that one will come and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter then equates that phrase, baptized by the Holy Spirit, with receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts 10 
and in Acts 11. So that, I believe, is the baptisms that saved. There's, there's this question and debate in Christianity. Do you need to be baptized in order to be saved? And I would argue yes and no. Yes, you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. No, you don't need to be baptized by water. But as Pastor Tom said, water baptism often in Scripture followed the spiritual baptism sure. of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, to the listener's question, does is this a reference to water baptism? I mean, on one hand, I think it could be, but I think that dynamic that you've already brought out, both, both of you have, is deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in terms of what baptism actually symbolizes, if you look at every major, all the covenants of the Bible, that they, they all that had a symbol to mark um you know, one's obedience to or their their faith or trust in that covenant that God established. And and I think, you know, the case has been that the new covenant that, that was established by the blood of Christ, that that our entrance into that is marked by baptism. It's that external symbol mm-hmm. that in and of itself, you know, like a, a, that's, that's why he even says it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. So he's not talking about an external action, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Right through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's that idea that my sins have been removed. I am counted as God's own, and I belong to his family. And that's what baptism symbolizes. It's interesting. Again, here in the West, it's a ritual for most people. I hate to say it, but it is. You go to the Middle East today, they would not separate water baptism from the, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit because it takes such courage (laughs) <laughs> to get baptized publicly mm-hmm. when the people around you want to kill you. And so mm-hmm. that's a huge step. We miss that. We don't have that problem here in the West, uh, but maybe we should just wait. It'll come along one day. Yeah, water baptism was an identification with this group. And actually, yeah. my understanding in the first mm-hmm. century, you could get baptized into any number of groups. It was a, a relatively common practice. Christianity has taken that, or Christ has taught that, to say, you, we're going to use this water baptism to symbolize your identification now with the death, burial, and resurrection of yeah. Jesus Christ. And not a cleansing of skin, but a cleansing of the soul from sin. Yep. Mm-hmm. But back then, that event of salvation and baptism were the same moment. Often. Yeah, they often, right? It could well they receive the Holy Spirit and then Peter says, Hey, what prevents us from baptizing these people? They saw it as one and the same. We don't, and for a lot of reasons we don't, but they certainly did, and you're right, I think Peter would see it or the New Testament would mm-hmm. see it as part of the same action, even if it didn't occur at exactly the same moment. And some want to turn water baptism into some kind of religious requirement, which I think kind of takes the other extreme to this as well. So, mm-hmm. All right, here's a question that comes from the Old uh, Testament in Leviticus 15, and this is a, um, this listener was a teenager when she heard this verse. She said, uh, he or she said, I was thunderstruck by the verse. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. The question is, how should I interpret those verses? Hmm. And there's the awkward pause. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm actually looking at the verse. Okay. So. Yeah, which 
We're in four. Leviticus, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus, Leviticus, uh, I'm sorry. 15? 15, 19, yeah. 15. 15, 19. 19. Well, while you guys were reading, let me just put out some thoughts. I know the law was given to Israel to set them apart from all the other nations. The law was good for them. And many of the laws, for example, was to set a person outside the camp when they touched dead bodies or became unclean or had open sores and so on. What they did not understand in those days was bacteria and viruses and so on of open wounds. In fact, mankind wouldn't discover this for thousands of years, that someone who's sick should be quarantined from healthy people. And we didn't understand that for thousands of years. God gave those instructions to Israel uh, long before man ever discovered that. So um, I don't know... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm no biologist. I don't know that bodily discharge may have some of those same properties that, you know, this is something to be set apart, separated, not mm-hmm. to, to deal with. Um, and because if you do, you're going to be unclean and should be set apart. So I, I think that probably yeah. fits into that same category. Well, and I think verse 24 says exactly that, Jeff. You look oh. at verse 24. Yep. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he 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 shall be unclean for seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. In other words, there is a separation when you violate the Lord's will in that period of time, and I'm sure bacteria fit into that and all the other things. Had to wait seven days. Well, what do we hear today? You know, even with COVID, you know, once you get it, you know, then you have to seven to ten days, and then maybe you're clear. I think Mm -hmm. the Bible is way ahead of us on this stuff. It just doesn't explain it in the same way. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. That's uh, all the time we have in this hour. But we do have the extended version of Guy Talk, which means we're going to have another 30 minutes after the break. I don't know, Justin, if you're around or if you have to leave us. Yeah, I unfortunately cannot stay. I got to go be with my my three young kiddos here. So I didn't didn't know. Otherwise, yeah, let me know ahead of time. All right. Yeah. We we know that's your cover story. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Cover story. Yes. Good, good luck. Good luck in Monte Carlo tonight. Okay. Uh, we'll uh, still take your questions. So during the break, you've got uh, about four minutes to send them over. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.